Well, we're glad that you're here. Uh, if you're here for the first time, thanks for coming. This is the College Ministry of Faith Bible Church, and I want to especially welcome you if you've never been here before. It's always awkward coming into somebody else's house or sitting in their backyard. By the way, if you get cold, do we need to turn the heaters on? Or are you guys okay? You, you want them on? Not on. Well, you were playing basketball, so you're sweating. Okay, I will leave that to AJ to determine how that's going to function. And Trevor, you got that one if you need it. Okay, so uh, we are the College Ministry of Faith Bible Church. We meet here every Friday night. Our purpose in meeting is to help college students know Jesus Christ, and we are thrilled to be with you. A lot of old faces, a couple new faces. I hope to meet you at some point. Um, stick around after the night's over. We got full-on coffee bar going over there, specialty coffee. Pickleball will be going on, fire burning. Uh, we're going to have all sorts of great stuff happening. So you came on a good night. Um, I do hope you had a good Christmas. New Year's, Farrell's did. Uh, as it turns out, my parents are still in New Zealand. They've been there for nine months, just hanging out. Go figure. And uh, my sister is playing it safe with COVID. So it was just the four of us for Christmas, which is incredibly rare. And then also the four of us for New Year's. And we popped a balloon every hour on the hour in the evening and did a fun event as a family, one of which was just driving around town because Zoe has her permit. So we had all sorts of good things that we did and fun. And we played the Disney game, which is on a Pandora Disney station. And the song comes on and you have to identify what movie it's from. And I used to be really good at this and now the girls kill me. But anyway, and then we sing all these songs together. Enchanted, Tangled, all this, uh, not Enchanted, but Tangled, all the good stuff. Anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, I had uh, my leg shaved this week, and that has nothing to do with the sermon, but by way of introduction. Um, look, just right there in the midsection, uh, because I had knee surgery on Monday, and they shaved my leg, and they gave me a razor burn on the back, which I don't understand why you do that to a guy with hairy legs. But uh, anyway... I am recovering. Thank you for caring so much about me. Uh, hopefully you've had a good, a good time off and uh, you've stayed healthy and haven't caught the Rona. There's some that are in and out sick. Others have escaped its clutches and we are definitely living in interesting times. So we're glad that you chose to join us tonight. Uh, yes. Okay. I'm moving on with my list. In other, in other news, Radix kicked off this week. Uh, raise your hand if you were at one of our Radixes. It's our midweek group. Yep, awesome. A lot of you were there. So it's a, it's a midweek Bible study. It meets Mondays and Wednesdays at two different houses in the area. It was a kickoff night, and uh, it's really a good time to get to know people at a different level. This is a great time to come, hang out, have fun, fellowship. Radix is a great chance to get with a little bit of a smaller group, get into each other's lives, and get some real uh, depth of community, fellowship, but even some accountability and build deeper relationships. Each week there's dinner, there's small group times, and there's more intentional fellowship. Those are all the hallmarks of what we do. Um, and if you haven't been for a while or have never been, it is the perfect time to join in because we're just getting going. And part of our new series, which I'll explain in a minute, it's fantastic because we are attacking the to same topics and radics that we're going to be addressing here this semester. So that being said, this semester, we've got three different things we're doing from the pulpit. Uh, three different topics on Friday nights. I'm going to start at the end and work backwards. In April and May, we're going to be diving into a series on relationships. Uh, last semester, we, we did a whole semester. We titled the Issues List and looked at all the current events and all the difficult things, politics. Um, uh, what, what else do we look at? Uh, Same-sex attraction, uh, transgenderism. We looked at racism. Uh, we, we looked at a ton of different things. 
but we didn't look at relationships. And that is the biggest issue facing every one of you right now. So we're going to handle that in a series of weeks in April and May. It's going to be great. Um, just before that, we are going to, we are going to study uh, the small epistle of Philemon. It's a little tiny book, a little letter in the New Testament. Paul wrote it, 25 verses. It is his most personal letter. It's written to his friend Philemon, uh, who had a slave named Onesimus, and his slave Onesimus ran away, ran to the biggest city he could go to to be in the big, like go, it's like going to New York or Las Vegas just to be lost among the people. And while there, he runs into the apostle Paul. <laughs> he gets saved, and Paul gives him a letter and sends him back to go to his old owner and talk with him. The penalty should have been what? For a runaway slave, should have been death. And Paul challenges Philemon to not only forgive him, but to accept him back as a brother. And this little tiny letter teaches us so much about interpersonal relationships, forgiveness, and how to treat others when you've been wronged. And I can't wait to get there because I think it's gonna be a big help to each of us in our relationships with friends, family, uh, even coworkers, people in the church, etc. So. That's down the road. Tonight, we embark on a series that will take us all the way to Easter's. And for the next eight to 10 weeks, we're gonna dig into a more theological, a more doctrinal study, and I titled it Paradox. Paradox is the name of the next eight to 10 weeks, and there's a tagline on it, Living Intention. The series name is Paradox, the tagline is Living Intention. Let me, let me just back into this. And tonight I'm just gonna intro this topic and then we're gonna get into it next week. What is a paradox? Webster, does Webster still exist? Do you understand when I say Webster defines it? Is that a normal statement to you? It is? Okay. Uh, because you just put into Google, right? But Webster is the original dictionary guy. Webster defines it as a seemingly absurd or self-contradictory statement that when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. Let me do it one more time. Paradox is a seemingly absurd or contradictory statement that when investigated may prove to be well-founded or true. Paradox, in layman's terms, is something that doesn't make a whole lot of sense at first glance. Something in which there seems to be two sides that don't perfectly match. Something that stretches the mind, as it were, and creates mental conflict in order to reach a solution. Now, the Bible is full. It is full of apparent paradoxes. Things that at first glance, according to Webster, appear to be absurd or even self-contradictory, but upon deeper investigation, prove to be well-founded and true. And my goal tonight, like I just said, is to introduce our series and give a little framework for the specific topics that we're gonna be studying. And I, I gotta warn you, it will be a deeper dive. This will challenge your thinking. And we're gonna ask and answer questions that you didn't even know were questions to ask and answer. Uh, some of you have wrestled deeply with some of these things. Some of you never thought about them. But nonetheless, these are great questions that we want to try our best to understand. So that's going to require some thinking, some processing, some wrestling, and potentially even some deeper study outside of our time together. But we'll be in the deep end of the pool looking at some of the more difficult, difficult topics that are laid out in Scripture. 
So to set the table, before I tell you what we're doing, let me just give you, this is the message tonight, four kind of preliminary points, four things that are going to help us as we get into this and look at these topics that are very difficult to answer. Okay? This is just a, a quick synopsis. The first one is this. Here you go. Number one, we are limited. We are limited. If you go back to the very first pages of your Bible, you'll see that there um, God unfolds and begins to unfold his plan in this universe. He says in Genesis 1, let there be light. Thank you, Nick. And there was light. Right? He says, let there be dry land. Let there be a sky and an expanse. Let there be plants and vegetation. Let there be a sun and a moon and stars in the sky. Let there be fish in the sea and birds in the sky. Let there be animals and creeping and crawling creatures that go about on the land. Days one through six. And then finally, at the end, in day six, in Genesis 2-7, it says there, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. You and I came from dirt. We were born, well, we were born, obviously. We were created by God. We are creatures, not created, not creator, and we are limited. Genesis 3.19, if Genesis 2 says God formed you from dust, Genesis 3 says, um, by the sweat of your face, you, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. Dust. Okay. In Job 33, 5, it says, I have been formed out of the clay. In Psalm 103, 14, it says that God himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. What's the point? Look up. The point is that you have a beginning and you will have an end. You exist in one place at one time. You have a brain inside of that coconut of yours that is just over three pounds, that has millions upon millions of neural connections controlling every thought, every process in your body. It, it, it takes over 25% of the oxygen supply just in that little space, and it's more advanced than any computer on the planet, and yet you and I do not know everything. We don't even know a lot of things. You might think, well, I'm pretty smart. I got things figured out. Let me see how smart you are. <clears throat> what is three times three plus eight? 17. 17. Lucas got in the front. Okay. So he gets the next one. What is three times three plus eight times three? Uh, 51 from Chris Hunter. He's a computer nerd at work, but he also can do things in his head. Okay. Okay. So, and, and you'd figure those out. Like, okay, yeah, whatever. What is three times three plus eight times three divided by 11.72? <laughs> Wrong. 4.3515. Okay, but, but, but watch. You could solve that, right? Because you have an iPhone and you swipe down. There's a little calculator button right there. And we could figure that out. Or if you had to do it longhand, or for those of you who grew up in Common Core, anybody on Common Core here? You know, I'm not sure you'd be able to figure it out, but, but at some point, you could solve the equation, right? Some of you, this is the expression we use, are good at math, right? My daughter says, Dad, I just, it, it's, just, it's easy. I just get it. The people next to me, they're pulling their hair out, lighting the paper on fire. She's in eighth grade, and yet 
She's, she gets 100% on every test. I don't, I mean, I, I'm just good at math. Some of you are good at writing. You, you just have prose. You just want to write and write and words come to you and the English language flows off of your tongue or off the pen in a way that's really helpful. Uh, some of you can draw or paint or sculpt things. You have artistic abilities. Wait, who are, where, who, where are my artists here? Yes, that's what I'm talking about. Which one is it? It's with the pen. With the pen? You like to draw. Yeah, right? And it just comes natural. And you enjoy doing it. You're good at it. Uh, some of you are musical and love music. Do I got any mus- musicians here? Okay. Okay, I should go back to the beginning. I love my musicians, particularly the piano players. It's so soothing and amazing. Who, how many math people are here? Yeah. You either, you either love them or you hate them. Right there. Okay. Um, how many of you like to write poetry and you just have a mind that fits in a, in a lyrical, poetic way? Charles put his hand up. Thanks, Charles. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, and Logan, where are you? Good morning. If, you haven't, if you're one of his ladies and you haven't gotten a poem from him, you don't write? There, you just, just know he could. Okay. Some of you are athletic. You got good physical prowess. Let's see, who's, who are those people in the room? Okay, yeah, okay. And how many of you are humble? Lucas, you, good, thank you. Okay. Here's, here's, here's what I'm going to get at. All of us are good at something. Some of us are good at a lot of things. But all of us have a limited capacity, okay? You're like the soda can that, or a small cup of water that fills up relatively quickly compared to the giant... A pool that's over here that is is enormous. Um, no one is good at everything. And if you think you are, I've watched your interactions. I sit over here and watch you interact with the opposite sex. Okay, so I know that you're struggling. I'm going to fix that or try to help you with that in May and June. Just stay tight till then. Philosophy, sociology, politics, economics, history, literature, science, art, abstract thought. There is a limit to what the human mind can do and to what the human mind can know. We are born, we learn stuff, we forget more stuff than we know, we lose our train of thought. What was I saying? We can't connect the dots. Uh, We don't know what we're talking about. I got confused, I forgot about that. And on and on these simple expressions go that show that our bodies and our minds already are getting weaker and weaker as we grow older and older, and then one day we die. In Psalm chapter 90, verse 10, Moses wrote this. He says, as for the days of our life, they contain 70 years, or if due to strength, 80 years, and maybe today, if due to strength, 100 years. He says, yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for soon it is gone and we fly away. The end of every one of us is confined. We were born, we d- we're gonna die. We came from dust, dust that we, were, we will return. And we should understand our limitations. No one has ever gotten straight A's on every test. No one has ever handled every situation right. We are finite, again, confined to one space, confined to one time, limited by our education experiences, mental capacity. And ultimately there are things that we don't understand. So again, I'm setting the table for paradox. The first point is that we are finite. The second point, number two, or the first point is God is, excuse me, 
We are limited. Second point, excuse me. God is unlimited. We are limited, but God is unlimited. He is the exact opposite of us in every way. Completely unrestrained and unlimited. Let me give you a few things. Not exhausted, because we're talking about an infinite God, but God has no beginning. God has no end. He is eternal. He has no need to learn or gather information. He is not coming up to speed on anything. He has all knowledge. He knows all things. He has all power, and he can do as he pleases. He is not confined to space or time. Listen to this. He fills all space and exists at all times, all at once. He is everywhere at the same time. He is every time, all the time. That one's mine. You can write it down. Uh, Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, sums up the omnis of God very well. Omni, omnipresent, right? Omniscient, omnipotent. So God knows all things. God is everywhere at once, and God is all-powerful. Revelation 1, 8 says this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have you jump to scripture in just a minute, but it says this. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God. He who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. Watch this. First phrase, I am the Alpha and the Omega. In the Greek language, Alpha is the first letter. Omega is their Z, it's the last letter. Have you noticed in, the, in Amazon, by the way, you should have bought Amazon stock, uh, and it's still going up, but uh, Amazon and Tesla right? And Google. But now they're like $8,000 and Bitcoin. What's up with Bitcoin? But that's a whole different story. (laughs) Anyway, if you look at Amazon's, uh, Lainey, what do we call those things? Their uh, logo. Thank you. If you look at their logo, have you ever noticed a little arrow underneath that's pointing one direction? It starts at the A and it goes to the Z. If you've never noticed that, there's a lot of these things built into some of the logos. What they're saying without saying it is that we have everything, right? And they do, pretty much. God says, I am the A to Z. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I have every letter in the alphabet contained. I know all things, all knowledge. It says in Revelation 1.8, not only is the Alpha and the Omega, it says he who is and who was and who is to come. Translation, I existed before time. I am here now. I will be here into the future. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Okay, he's, he's eternal. And then uh, we can't even, uh, okay, you can't even say he existed before time, right? Because you're using time to describe eternity and that is, eternity is not a function of time. So it, Screws yourself up, but anyway. And then it says there, who was, is, and is to come, the Almighty. In the old, the, that phrase, the Almighty, in the Old Testament, God's name was called El Shaddai, and it meant the all-powerful God. He is all of these things. In the book of Job, Zophar, Job's friend, says this in Job chapter 11, verse 7, can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, What can you know? Point is, God is infinite and we are finite. God is unlimited 
and we are limited. And as we get to this particular series, we are looking, like I said, in swimming in the deep end of the pool where the mind of an infinite God dwells and trying to wrap our human pea brain minds around these thoughts of an infinite God is not totally possible. But we're going to attempt our best to at least unlock this and look at it. Open your Bibles to Romans 11, verse 33. Let me just show this to you in Scripture. Romans eleven thirty-three. this is called a doxology, which is Paul just erupts and prays to God at the end of this long discussion about the future salvation of Israel and the sovereignty of God. He says this, Romans eleven thirty-three. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. God cannot be put in a box. God cannot be measured. God cannot be fully known. He is unlimited, and we are finite. That takes us to point number three. God's word is our standard. God's word is our standard. If you claim to be a Christian, or if you're trying to understand what it means to be a Christian, Christians are those who submit their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ and follow him. Jesus Christ and God's plan for your life was laid out very clearly in his word. His plan for salvation, his plan for your life, his plan for this entire universe, he spelled it out in 66 books given to you. Most of you are holding it in your lap or you got it for free on your iPhone. I want to just give you three character qualities of God's word. And and what I'm going to tell you is that you have chosen as a Christian, listen carefully, to submit to what the Bible says. Okay, we're going to come back to this in a minute. His word again is our standard. The first thing you need to know about God's word is that it is inerrant. Inerrant, that's one word. I-N-E-R-R-A-N-T. I had to spell check it multiple times. I keep spelling it wrong. Inerrant. God's word is inerrant. The word inerrant means it is, the Bible is completely without error or fault. In Psalm 19, verse 7, It says the law of the Lord is, does anybody know? The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. It is perfect. Hebrews 6.18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. He is the God of truth, and therefore everything that he has written and given to us is also truth. It's inerrant. God's word is perfect. There are no errors in it. There are no mistakes. There are no whoopsies. It is perfect and we trust. Secondly, it is authoritative. It is authoritative. Do you want to look at Joshua chapter 1 verse 8? You'll recognize this verse. I'll have you turn somewhere differently. No, go there. We've got to make you move your Bibles around. Joshua 1 8. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8. God is charging Joshua, and Joshua is charging his people. And it says there, 
in Joshua 1 8, talking about the authority of God. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. This is a soft way of saying, I have given you the law, and you will keep the law. This book, this law has authority over your life. Be careful to do according to what is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have success. You should meditate on it. It should be on your heart and you need to be careful to obey it. God's word is authoritative. He speaks, we obey. Matthew 4, 4, um, Jesus says to Satan and when he's being tempted, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What's the principle? God's word has value. We submit ourselves to it and we exist because of it. And then you'll know Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is a sword that pierces. It has power and it wields authority to cut us into pieces if necessary. Number three, God's word is sufficient. God's word is inerrant. God's word is authoritative. God's word is sufficient. Open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is New Testament towards the back half of your Bible. 2 Timothy 3. Let me show you what sufficient means. Uh, sufficient, by definition, means you have everything you need. Right? No, I've got enough. Hey, do you need, uh, your mom says to you, who still live at home, do you need another blanket? And you say, no, I'm okay. I'm sufficient. Don't you love having a mom that takes care of you? For those of you that still do, that are 25, 24, hopefully. Uh, why are you looking at Nick? No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so. You did. Oh, good for you. Okay. But anyway, sorry, that's a whole separate note. Second Timothy 3.16, we're talking about being sufficient. It says they're all scripture. All scripture is inspired by God. And it's profitable or sufficient for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that, verse 17, the man of God or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Everything you need for life and godliness is given to you in this book. It is sufficient, okay? It is enough. And so what all of this means, and the reason I'm spending so much time here very simply this, God's word is your standard, okay? It is perfect, inerrant, it is authoritative, we submit to it, and thirdly, it is sufficient, it's all that we need. And so when God's word says something, this is point number four, I don't wanna get a, a, away from myself, point number four, when our mind falls short, God's word stands. When our minds fall short, God's word stands, that's number four. So this is, this is the situation. We get stuck and we don't understand something, okay? And it seems like it doesn't line up and we can't solve the riddle, riddle and our mind is stretched beyond the breaking point. But the scripture teaches it, we stand on that. We submit to it, we trust in it. Have you ever said this or heard somebody make this comment? The God I believe in would never whatever. You ever heard that before? Okay, you have just invented a God of your own making. You don't define what God would and wouldn't do. He defines it, and he tells us about it in his word. 
It's an arbitrary statement to say the God I believe in would never send somebody here or do this to that person. You're creating your own God. The real God, the one true God has revealed himself in the book you're holding in your hands. That's it. And so we take what he says at face value, we come under its authority and we believe it. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, is not my word like fire declares the Lord and like a hammer which shatters rock. That's the power of God's word. It is gonna shatter. First Peter 5, 6 says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 18, I say to you until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, not a single stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. God has given us his word. It is perfect. It is authoritative. It is enough. And you and I need to look at what it says. And when we can't understand it or disagree, we choose to submit ourselves to it. First Peter 1, look at First Peter chapter 1, all the way towards the, the very end of your Bible. It's like five books before the end. You should see this one. First Peter chapter 1, verses 23 to 25. It says, you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. What's the point? God's word is eternal. It is here to stay. And you and I would do well to come under it. So, those are my four points. We are limited. God is unlimited. His word is the standard. When our minds fail, God's word stands. Okay? That's all the preface to where we're going. Now, in just a couple minutes before I close this, um, as we address these topics, I'm going to lay them out for you. The, the, this is going to be our approach. Okay? We're going to approach each message the same way. Similar to our issues list last fall, we're going to answer the following three questions. What is the paradox? What does the Bible say about the paradox? And what is my response to this truth? Okay? It's going to be pretty straightforward, but it'll give us some, some uh, clarity and simplicity as we work through it. Here are our topics. Next week, we're going to study God himself. We're going to look at the Trinity. And if you haven't thought about it for a while, just engage for a, for a minute here. God is three. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. And God is one. In the great Shema in Deuteronomy 6, Moses gather the people and God says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And yet, he's revealed himself in three persons. How does that work? And I don't want to get too much into it because we're going to hit it next week. This is a paradox that cannot be solved in our minds. But it's what sets Christianity apart from other religions. The study is amazing. If you've thought about the Trinity, you're like, yeah, that's just some heady stuff. You're missing this. There is so much application for your life in understanding the nature of God. And I cannot wait to get into this with you. In two weeks from now, we're going to look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is God, very God, eternal by nature, infinite in all the things we just talked about in the character of God. And yet, he poured himself into a physical body, was born of a virgin, lived 33 years, and the giver of life died. How does that work? 
that God, who is everywhere, was confined to a human body. And what does that mean? It, it is beyond explanation. It is a paradox. And we're going to look at that one. How about this one? The Bible was written by God. We just talked about that, right? It's the word of God. The Bible was written by men. 40 different authors wrote 66 different books over thousands of years, over hundreds of miles of geography from different cultures and in different languages. And yet there is one divine author. They were not just a pen that God wrote through them to put on paper. Somehow God spoke his word and used the mind and personality of men as they wrote to bring that together. I don't understand it, but we're going to try to look at that and explain it at some level. That's a paradox. How about this one? God is, 1 John 4:7, love. It's the only attribute that he is defined as. God is also a wrathful God. How do you reconcile the infinite, amazing love of God with his wrath? That is a paradox. And it is radical. Is there a God who's filled with love and just wants to pour out judgment on sinners? Is there an Old Testament God and a New Testament God that are different? Like you look at the Old Testament, you're like, this is all fire, hell and brimstone. The New Testament, this is all Jesus and love must be two different God. Like how does all that work? Do they change? We're going to look at that. How about this one? If God is sovereign, meaning he controls all things, he is on his throne doing as he pleases, how can man be responsible? How can God be in control and sovereign and man still have free will? We say it a different way. How can God send people to hell if he sovereignly has prevented them from going to heaven? Difficult question to answer. Those are the topics that deal mostly with the theological side of things. The the theological theology is the study of God, and that is a pretty heady topic. All of those are so awesome and will bring us to an understanding of God that will raise us into worship and yet things that we need to wrestle with. The rest are a bit more practical in nature. Um, How many are there? I've got two more. How about this? Uh, Christians live between two worlds. On the one hand, you have the city of God, the other hand, the city of man, or that's, that was Augustine, or you could say the eternity of each person is either in one of two destinations, heaven or in hell. Those who are Christians are bound for glory, have submitted their lives to Christ and know they'll be with their savior. And yet we live in a world that is on the broad road headed for destruction. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter three, who is adequate for these things. Do you remember the tagline, living intention? The Christian should always be living intention. Let me, let me come back to that in a second. Let me give you the last one. Oh wait, there's two more. Um, we're called to total dependence, total trust in God. In every aspect of our life, we are told 
I hate this phrase, let go and let God. It's not a biblical phrase, but the idea of just trusting him fully. And yet, at the same time, we are commanded to go to work. We are commanded to work out our salvation. We are commanded to strive for heaven with violence. We are commanded to store up our treasure. On one side, complete dependence. On the other side, complete exertion. How does that work? Okay, and then the last one. You and I have a sin nature that's woven into each one of us. We have the old man inside of us. We are sinful and it's, it is in our DNA in the very fabric of who we are. We also, as Christians, have God himself dwelling in us. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. is no longer I who live, but what does it say? Christ lives in me. So here we are in the battle between these two worlds of the old and the new man, knowing what we're supposed to do, having the spirit of God informing our minds and telling us to live for Christ, and yet continuing to fall and fail in sin. There's a wrestle. That one's not so much of a paradox as much as it is somewhat of a paradox. How does God dwell inside of a sinner? But anyway, let me, let me go back to what I was saying before. Living intention is the tagline. In the life of a Christian, tension does not go away. Okay? You cannot solve these riddles. They're not riddles. You can't solve these theological paradoxes. You can only trust the Lord and submit to him. To go too far to one side and say, I figured out the Trinity, it's like an egg, three parts, one deal. It's like water, three different states. None of that works. You, you try to explain it and you fail. You have to stay in the middle where you exist in tension always. And too, side to one, too far to one side, too far to the other side, you're in trouble. Our infinite minds... We can't get it all right. We can't understand all of it. So on this side of eternity, the Christian lives in tension. You're at peace. You're free from sin, but you live in this tension. Think about heaven and hell for just a minute. You live in the middle under tension. You live in a home with unbelievers. You have friends who are unbelievers. You live in tension of what that means, always. So that's it. We're done for the evening. Like I said, a more theological and doctrinal study but it's gonna be good to stretch our minds a bit. And just to say this, coming back full circle to where we started with Radix, usually in Radix we have guys stepping up and teaching and then we discuss what they're teaching on. It's a whole separate topic from what's going on a lot of times on uh, Friday nights. This semester, we've chosen to eliminate that, that preaching time. And the week before I teach on these particular topics, you're gonna be discussing these in a group-led discussion ahead of time so you can actually wrestle with these truths and work through them together, and then I will hit it up on Friday night, and we'll, we'll have a couple different times together in that way. So I'm excited about that change. Paradox. Paradox, living intention. We're going to hit it next Friday night. Come back, and that's it. Let me pray, and we'll uh, sing one more song and be done. Father, thank you so much for this time together.